we need. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be gathered in your house on your day, opening your word to hear your voice. Lord, we long to be your people. And so as we approach your word, we approach it with a humility, recognizing that this book is more than just ink on paper, that this is more than just a routine of things to do at the end of a week, but this is sacred time that you have opened up because you are a relational God who wants to give us rest. And so as we approach you today, please give us that sense of awe and wonder. And as we open up the Bible, please give us an eagerness to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' saving name, let the family say, amen, amen. Today we're talking about the one thing we need. Is it true? Yeah, we've got a lot of needs, but is there just one? Is there just one? If we could pinpoint it, is there one thing that we need? That's what we'll talk about today. And then if you come out tonight, tonight our presentation is taking a stand at the end. Uh, just a little bit of a preview in case you haven't been able to make it. And then Sunday night, the mystery of death and the beauty of hell. And like I said before, this is not a typo. That's exactly how it's supposed to be. And then on Monday night, a love that transforms. But again, today, what we're looking at is the one thing we need. Please, take a Bible if you have one already in your laps or maybe in the pew in front of you. Let's look up these first two texts that are in your presentation outline. We're going first to Daniel chapter 6. And if you're really an eager beaver, go ahead and look up both Daniel 6 and Acts 5, all right? So let's go ahead and find the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 6. It's the story of a prophet, the story of a man. And if you, if you have understood this story, maybe you heard this story from when you were a little kid. The story when Daniel is now not just a young boy who is taken captive to Babylon, but over the decades, he is now an aged man, not just serving in Babylon's court, but now in Persia's court. Apparently, when Medo-Persia took over Babylon, they saw that Daniel was such a man of excellence that he was still one to be trusted, even as the powers, the political powers changed. And in Daniel chapter 6, we read this story where there were men of Persia, the princes of that, that, uh, that court, that really began to feel a certain sense of jealousy toward Daniel. Hey, who is this foreigner that he's actually ruling over us? They began to try to pick apart his life and character. They tried to throw mud around and see if he could really accuse him of something. But they discovered that this man was upright, blameless. He was a man who really walked the walk and not just talked the talk. You, you realize that Daniel is a man after God's own heart. And according to verse, where is it? Verse 4, Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, the Bible says, I'm reading from the New King James Version, and the Bible says, so the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find how much? No charge. They could find no charge or fault because he was, what's that next word? Faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Faithful. That's a word that we don't really value very much in the, the society that we live in today. You know, we say one thing, we do another. We uh, make commitments, but then we turn back on them. But Daniel was a man who was, what was that word? Faithful. And I would even say he was forever faithful. What was the secret? 
What was the secret of his faithfulness? Actually, the story continues. The plot thickens and his faithfulness is really demonstrated because these men who were trying to accuse Daniel, they said, hey, if we kind of trick him into doing something against his own God, then we'll find fault against him. And so they tricked the king of Persia to actually enact this law that says, hey, no one should pray to any God except the king himself. The king thought that it was very flattering. Yeah, people should be entreating him. And so as, as the story goes, you know, Daniel hears about this and he realizes, wait, praying to no God except the king, that's a straight con- con- contrast, contrary to the conviction of my faith, the conviction of the very plain word of God. And what was Daniel going to do? Remember, Daniel was faithful. But when it came to being faithful to God versus being faithful to men, who is he going to choose? He was going to be faithful to God and God alone. Notice what it says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. If you're there, say amen. Okay, the Bible says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees, how many times that day? Three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since his early days. Notice, very significant details. Daniel, when he finds out about this, he doesn't go home just to hide and cry. No, what he does is he goes to pray to the very God that this law is enacted to say, no, you cannot do that. And he doesn't just do it once. He does it three times that day. He doesn't just do it uh, in the, the hiddenness of his closet, but he opens up his windows toward Jerusalem because that was actually the promise of Old Testament scripture that says, hey, when when your people are taken captive, pray towards Jerusalem that God might deliver you. And so Daniel was really taking God at his word. He's saying, look, the word of God is more, more real, more faithful, more powerful than the word of man. And Daniel decided to pray and seek God's face. And according to verse 11, then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. The story goes on, maybe you know that because of this, Daniel was thrown into something. Do you know what it was? It was a lion's den. He was thrown into the lion's den. It was a death sentence. But the very next day, those lions were still hungry. Why? Because the angel of the Lord had shut the lion's mouths. The angel of the Lord had granted honor and favor upon Daniel. Why? In response to his faithfulness. Interesting. And this faithfulness was demonstrated by the fact that he would pray and give God thanks as his custom was since his early days. All right. Now just hold this in, in a, on a shelf in your mind. Go with me now to the New Testament. New Testament, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Daniel's example is not just an anomaly. It's not just a one-time wonder. Apparently, this is something that the followers of God demonstrate. They demonstrate faithfulness to God's Word. And I want to ask the question, how does someone develop this kind of faithfulness? How does Daniel do it? How do the disciples do it? We're in Acts chapter 5. Acts is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then Acts chapter 5, verse 29. If you found it, go ahead and say, I found it. All right, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. The Bible says, But Peter and the other apostles answered. Peter and the other apostles, they were brought before the religious leaders. They were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. 
something that they couldn't do. Why? Because Jesus was more than wonderful to them. (laughs) Jesus was more than marvelous. Jesus was alive. Jesus was someone to declare and proclaim. And according to Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Just like Daniel of old, the disciples in the New Testament found that, wait a minute, when there is a contradiction between what men say and what God says, I must choose the way of God. Where does that faithfulness come from? According to Daniel, it was something that was rooted and grounded in his time alone with God. How about for the disciples? Flip a chapter earlier. Flip a chapter earlier to chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Verse 13, a very similar situation. Peter and John brought before the religious leaders. They were told to do this when really God wanted them to do this. And in verse 13, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the Bible says, Now when they saw the boldness, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been where? With Jesus. In other words, when they, when they discerned how bold these, were, these men were, how, how faithful they were to standing for the word of God, what they sensed as a conviction straight from God, they said, whoa, these guys, that comes from being with Jesus. Are you following today, yes or no? Yeah? Go take your presentation outline. Maybe you've already filled it in. It says, sometimes our commitment to remain loyal to God and his commandments requires us to go against, go ahead and get your pens moving, requires us to go against the flow of man's requirements and expectations. Maybe you've already found that to be true. You've sensed, hey, you know what? God wants me to, to, to live an upright life when my workplace requires me to fib on this or that. No, 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 I can't do that. Why? Why? Because I serve God, not just man, right? Maybe, you know, following God actually goes against the requirements and expectations of others. In the paragraph, the paragraph that follows, it says, Both Daniel and the disciples of Jesus serve as examples of people who stood true to God's word and God's commandments over the word and commandments of men. Question today, how many of you want to stand true to God's word? Yeah, why? Because God has stood true for each and every one of us, right? He stood true to his promise. We want to be faithful too. The next sentence says, It is significant to note that in both stories, speaking of Daniel and the disciples, in both stories, these men were distinguished by the time. Go ahead and fill that in. Distinguished by the time they spent in the presence of God. Faithfulness is something to strive for. To be forever faithful is something we ought to to aim for. But the truth is this. Faithfulness does not happen at the flip of a switch. We don't just say, okay, one, two, three, I'll be faithful. (laughs) Faithfulness happens as we lay a solid foundation. And how do we lay that foundation? According to Daniel's experience, it was as he sought God on his knees three times a day with regularity, intentionality, and intensity. For the disciples, it was walking and talking with Jesus for three and a half years. That was the foundation of their faithfulness. So we ought not to expect that we can just, hey, I want to be faithful starting today. You know, it's a choice we need to make, but it's a foundation we need to start building in our everyday experience. What was it like for Jesus? Go with me to Mark. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We find that Jesus 
was the man who understood, you know what, sometimes man's expectations are really not what God is calling me to do. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus had a similar experience. Mark is the second book of the New Testament. When you found Mark chapter 1, go ahead and say amen. Okay. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. The Bible says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he, speaking of Jesus, went out and departed to a what kind of place? Solitary. Do you know what that means? Uh, alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Undistracted, all by himself. He went to a solitary place, and there he did what? He prayed. Apparently, Jesus, the Son of God, sensed his own need for communion with God. And what happens, as, as the story ensues in verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. But he, Jesus, said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Catch the, the flow of this story here. Jesus has just begun his public ministry. You kind of catch up. That, 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 uh, you get that sense in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus' ministry is now gaining traction. His popularity is rising. And there is this time where he slips away to a solitary place to pray. When the disciples are starting to look, hey, everyone is looking for you. Everyone has these demands on your time. But then Jesus says, no, no, no. I need to go over here. It doesn't make sense. According to man's expectations and requirements, it didn't make sense, but Jesus said, no, God wants me to go here. How did he know that? Because of his time alone with God. Do you see the fulcrum? It's a critical turning point there in Jesus' experience. He's modeling something for us. The handout says, the time Jesus spent alone with his Father in prayer and heart communion empowered him to live a life of faithfulness to God's will and word even when it went against other people's expectations. Friends, I'm thankful today that Jesus was faithful. <laughs> because of his faithfulness, I can have faith in his righteousness, right? And that faithfulness, Jesus himself, he laid that foundation with time alone with God. Friends, that's what we want to turn to, the one thing that we need. Go with me now to another New Testament chapter, Luke. Go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, there's a story that maybe you've heard before. Jesus wanted to go and hang out with some of his companions, some of his good friends. It's one of those houses that, you know what, when, when he just kind of wanted to unplug and relax, chillax, put up his feet, whatever, this was the place he wanted to go. It was the house of his friends, Mary and Martha. And in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38, we'll just kind of catch a snippet of this story. When you're there, say Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. The Bible says, Now it happened, as they went, that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And you understand that uh, when you welcome Jesus, you welcome his posse, right? <laughs> when you welcome Jesus, you also welcome 12 other hungry men. This was a very, very confident woman. Hey, hey, come on over, come on over. Let me throw it down in the kitchen. All right, here we go. Verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and did what? 
and heard his word. Okay, these details, they're kind of simple, but they're really setting up a, a story here. And in verse 40, it says, But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Where was Mary, by the way? Do you remember? Sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his word. Okay. Do you not care that my sister has left me alone to, excuse me, has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Verse 41. Some of you ladies can resonate, right? right, right. Where's my kitchen help? All right. Verse 41. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. I love the gentle way. Twice over. Hey, let me get your attention. Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled. That word troubled, it comes from a word that it's spazzing out. That, that's really the Greek word. It's spazitzo. It's it, you know, just kind of like, whoa. Okay. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. Verse 42, but one thing is needed. How many things? One thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. This is pretty incredible when you think about it. Is Jesus just over-exaggerating here? <laughs> hey, hey, we all have many things to do. We, we live in a multitasking society, right? Yeah? Oh, okay, maybe I'm the only one? Okay. <laughs> Trying to, I mean, moms, moms, you are amazing at this, by the way. Cooking with one hand, holding the child with another, doing the dishes with your foot. I don't know how it is. <laughs> go, mom. You go, mom. All right. But according to Jesus, there are many things that we could be distracted by, but only one thing is needful. Who chose it in this story? Who chose it? Mary did, right? And what was it that she chose? She sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Okay, so there in your handout, let's fill it in. According to Jesus, the one thing, the one thing we need is to spend intentionally invested time sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus' word. Sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus' word. Some of you are saying, the, the, the multitasker at heart is saying, well, that's nice. Yeah, that would be really nice. Time with Jesus, that, that's a luxury. Is it a luxury or is it a necessity? According to Jesus, it's a necessity. The question is, how, how necessary is it? I mean, come on, let's rationalize a little bit with me. Come on, let's reason this together. Now, the next portion in your handout, you see we've got Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Maybe you remember that. It's a story where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, right? Satan says, hey, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what instead? But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice how he says it. We don't live by bread only. Hey, oh, I, I live by bread. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Every, every morning I have toast with peanut butter, you know, bananas, honey, if I'm really hmm, feeling the sweet tooth that morning. Bread is a necessity, but Jesus says, no, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from where? God's mouth. According to Jesus, we live by the word of God. We live by the word of God. In fact, look at that text, Job chapter 23. Job 23, that's in the Old Testament. If you know about halfway through is the book of Psalms, 
Job is right before Psalms. And I probably should have told you to hold a bookmark in Luke 10. Sorry. If you still have it, keep it there. Job chapter 23. Notice how Job describes the necessity of God's word. Maybe you're still looking for Job. It's sometimes pronounced Job. <laughs> Job 23. Okay, now you found it. Okay, good. Job 23, verse 12. When you're there, say amen. amen. Okay. This is how Job understands the very word of God. He says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured. That means cherished, prized. The words of whose mouth? His mouth, God's mouth. More than what? More than my necessary food. You think your food is necessary? Right about now, you're probably, yes, don't hold me back from potluck, right? Yes, that food is necessary. When you and I miss a meal, we get grumpy, we get crabby, our blood sugar, you know, all this stuff, and we know, hey, don't, don't ask me to miss a meal. But somehow or another, we have switched our values where we think it's okay to miss the Word of God. Is it really more necessary than our food itself? According to the Bible, it is. We can treasure the words of his mouth more than our necessary food. In fact, that text in John 6, verse 63, Jesus says, hey, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh, it profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, that is spirit and that is life. Friends, the word of God is life itself. The Word of God is life. So is it necessary? Absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. The next question is this. How often is it necessary? Well, if we, we eat, we like to eat three times, maybe two times a day. Either way, we like to eat on a regular basis, a daily basis. And I would say that if God is comparing the Word to bread, then I would say just as bread is a daily necessity, just as our food is a daily necessity, so is the Word of God. Wouldn't you agree? Go with me to Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Maybe you know this story already. The children of Israel, they're going through the wilderness. They've been set free from Egypt on their way to the promised land. But even though they've seen the power and mercy of God, they are still quick to complain. All those people in the Bible, the only they complained. <laughs> Exodus chapter 16, and they complain about not having food. God actually rains down bread from heaven, and he begins this daily habit of actually sending them manna day after day, morning by morning, except for one day. Do you guys remember which one it was? It was the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath. Why? Because God, yeah, he, he wanted them to prepare a little bit extra on Friday so that on Sabbath they could rest. On Sabbath, they could rest. Very powerful story. Lots of, lots of powerful points here, but what I want us to see in Exodus chapter 16, verse 21, is the necessity of the bread that God gave from heaven. It says, So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. According to this story, this story of gathering physical bread, how often, how often did they do it? Every morning, every morning. If they waited too long, whoosh, right? Gone, gone. Think about now the bread from heaven. Heavenly bread. Could it be that God has bread from heaven every morning for us? And if we lingered too long, 
Where'd it go? Where'd it go? God has a meal, a feast, ready to serve for us each and every day. And it's more necessary than our food itself. Mm. So it's not just a luxury to spend time with God when Jesus said to Martha, hey, the one thing that's needed, Mary has chosen it. He was really talking about the one thing that we need. Time with God. In communion with God. Around the Word of God. The point is this, it's communion with God. And, and, you know, a lot of times people say, yeah, I pray to God. I pray to God, good, good, pray, pray, you know. But a lot of times when we say, yeah, I pray to God, we're talking about visiting the ATM machine and entering our PIN code and saying, this is what I want. <laughs> but when we talk about prayer, when we talk about communion, it's, it's prayer and study. It's not just me talking to God, it's allowing God to talk to me. You've been around those friends, right? Those friends that uh, you kind of grow weary of their company because they're the only ones talking. Oh, okay. Sorry. We don't have friends like that. (laughs) None of us are friends like that. Praise the Lord. But I wonder if we hold a friendship with God like that, where we're doing all the talking, and God has something to share with us, but we have not given him the time of day to actually share it. And so that's why, you know, I'm highlighting particularly, yes, time with God, but I'm highlighting specifically allowing God to speak to us through his word. It's the living word. It's the living word. Actually, in in Hebrews chapter 4, notice what it says. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Do you realize that the word of God is not just ink on paper? Do you realize that? That's what the Bible is saying about itself. The Word of God is living. That's alive. It's powerful. And it's able to give life too. uh, You're following in your handout more than just ink on paper. This is on the back side now. The Word of God is living and powerful, impacting the very core of who we are. How does it do that? How does it do that? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, notice what Paul says. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of who? The word of God, which also, I notice the next two words, effectively works in you who believe. The word of God is living and powerful, actually accomplishes something significant in our lives. And in John 17, verse 17, it specifies what is this work that the Word of God does. Jesus is praying and he says in John 17, 17, I guess I don't have it on the screen. In John 17, 17, Jesus actually says this prayer. He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What is that work? What is that work that that the Word of God does in us? It actually sets us apart for a holy purpose. The Word of God. Your first introduction to the Word of God when you read Scripture, the first introduction to the Word of God is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Where there was nothing before, God spoke and there was life. And when we encounter the Word of God, morning by morning, day by day, we have a chance for God to create, once again, a life where there was no life. That's the power of the Word. To sanctify us by His truth. To set us apart for a holy purpose. 
The reason why I'm so passionate about this, friends, is because this is, this is my story. You know, I, I, I grew up going to church. I grew up honoring Sabbath. I grew up going to Sabbath school and Bible study and adventurers and pathfinders and, and church school and all these things. And I grew up as a good kid. I grew up having family worships. I grew up with a very godly, supportive family. But it wasn't until I began to read the Bible for myself that my life really began to change. And I'll be very, very honest. Even though I was a good kid, I was always doing the things that I apparently was supposed to be doing, saying the things that I was supposed to say, pleasing the right people in the right way at the right time. Friends, I was really going through the motions. And maybe I was honest in heart, but I didn't sense a very deep devotion until I began to read the Word. I had a teacher, you know, growing up in, in a Christian school, I had a teacher who, when she talked about Jesus, she would refer to conversations she had with him that morning. And I began to realize that God was not just an idea to know about, but a person to love and live for. And as I saw that modeled in her life, around that same time, around that same time, I began to be uh, hanging out with another schoolmate of mine. She was in the class ahead of me. Her name was Debbie. <clears throat> really gifted, musically talented, beautiful young lady. So privileged to hang out with her. And as I got to know her, I, I realized, wait a minute, you actually read your Bible? <laughs> what Bible homework are you working on right now? No, no, no. She wasn't working on a lesson. She was doing this on her own. Morning, evening. This was her habit. And she doesn't like me bragging about her like this, but it's not bragging. <laughs> but, um, okay, it's bragging, sorry. <laughs> but that influence just really triggered something. For Christmas, uh, my freshman year in high school, she actually gave me a prayer journal. And what am I supposed to do with this? Well, when I read the Bible, I can actually write the things that I'm reading about and talk to God about it. And I began to spend time with Jesus. Around that same time, uh, my eighth grade teacher from the year before, she actually asked me, hey, would you be willing to preach a sermon? I said, uh, sure. <laughs> right? I was that good kid that always did the right thing. Anyway, so I said, yes, yeah, I've done speeches before. I'll, I'll preach a sermon. What are we preaching about? And she said, we're preaching on the sanctuary. Ooh. Got three students. One will do the outer court. One will do the holy place. One will do the most holy place. You, I want you to do the holy place. So I said, whatever the holy place is in the sanctuary, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. I'll Google it. No, we didn't have Google back then. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so what I did was I took those study resources that she gave me. She gave me a stack of, of articles and things. I took my Bible. I went to my sister's room of all places. I locked myself there with a highlighter and a pen, resources, Bible. Started studying, and I saw these connections that I had never seen before. I started studying this thing of the showbread that was on the, you know, the table of showbread there in the holy place. What is that bread all about? What is it symbolizing? It's symbolizing the very word of God that is to be treasured more than my necessary food. I remember the verses that I read right in John 6, 63. We've already said it. The, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. The words that I speak to you, those are spirit and those are life. The prayer of Jesus, sanctify them for through thy truth, thy word is truth. Those things were seared into my memory. It was like the, the fireworks were going off. The word of God is living and active. Amen. <sighs> From that time, I began to read and study 
and open up my mouth and allow God to fill it with his word. Uh, that is what really turned ship. And like I said, you know, I was a good kid. I, I, I knew what I was supposed to do and what, not, what I was not supposed to do. But as I spent time with Jesus, all those motions outwardly were coming from the inside out. I had a way of being able to, uh, you know, I don't need to go into my history of this or that or whatever, but the truth is that God began to make me his boy. Not just the teacher's pet, or not just mama's boy, or whatever. God began to make me his man. And rather than trying to fib here or tell a lie here in order to placate everybody around me, I began to trust Jesus with the truth and to recognize that, hey, look, I can live for him, and that's all that matters. And as I began to spend more time with Jesus, something that my eighth grade teacher often repeated to me was a simple principle that by beholding, we become changed. Have you heard that before? By beholding, we become changed. Maybe you've heard that same principle. You know, um, the, the people that you hang out with, those are the people that you become like. And as I began to spend more time with Jesus, by and by, he began to make me more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the Bible makes this very plain. It says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. As we behold Him, we become changed. And this is what the Word is. This is where face time originates. <laughs> It's beholding the face of God face to face as we see him in his word. You're following along in your handout. Let's go ahead and fill this one in. It says, the more we spend time fixing our eyes on the character of God in personal Bible study, the more we will be transformed into the same. By beholding, we become changed. Notice what I said. It's personal Bible study. Maybe some of you are saying, well, yeah, that's why I come week after week. I, I hear, I allow the, you know, the preacher to go ahead and share whatever he's been studying. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's good enough for me, friends. But, but it's not. <laughs> it's not. If the word is more necessary than our daily bread, we wouldn't go once a week for bread. We'd go every day, every day. You know, I, I, I once uh, had a chance to share this for a chapel service for our academy back in the day. You know, I took a loaf of Hawaiian bread, you know, King's Hawaiian bread, that sweet stuff. I said, hey, the, the Bible is like more necessary than our bread. How many of you want some bread? Everybody, yeah, yeah. I took a volunteer. Volunteer came up here. I said, you want some bread? He said, yes, I want some bread. I said, good. And I started to chew it myself. I gave it to him and said, here, have some bread. <laughs> I said, what's this? And this is what we do with our spiritual bread at times. We're content to let somebody else chew it up for us. Oh, it's good, yeah, but do we know how good it is? <laughs> Ourselves. See, it's the difference between, uh, maybe you remember those dating and courting times in your life where, you know, there's a difference between group dating and solo dating, Right? There's a certain intimacy that, uh, that you don't get to share. Yeah, you're, you're innocently getting to know somebody in the context of a group, but, but when you're by yourself, then you really get to lock eyes, so to speak. You really get to understand the person, so to speak. And so it is with God. I think sometimes in our walk with God, we content ourselves with group dating. 
Group dates are great, but God wants to sit one-on-one with you. Amen. Do you follow today, yes or no? Yeah? Some of us are thinking to ourselves, oh yeah, that's great, yeah, it's, it's good for that spiritual leader or that ministry leader or that pastor or this person, that spiritual giant. No, 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 no. This is something he wants for every single one of us. FaceTime, one-on-one. Group dates are great, but don't settle for it. Don't settle for it. Do you follow me today? Yeah? Okay. So, as we kind of start moving here toward the end of this presentation, I really want to get practical because we can talk about the the necessity of it. We can talk about the importance of it. but, But how do we actually make this happen? Is it okay if we get practical today? I know, yeah, potluck is a coming. Don't worry, it's there. It's there. But I want to make sure that we get practical because I don't want to leave you with this desire and then the next morning you're wondering, what do I do now? How is tomorrow morning going to be different? I want to give you three principles to start putting into practice, okay? Principle number one is this. Principle number one, approach is everything. Approach is everything. Maybe another word would be attitude. Attitude is everything. Go with me to an Old Testament book called Ezra. Can you find Ezra? If you're in Job, it's just a few books before. Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, and there's this Old Testament example of a, of a man who had the favor of God in his life. In fact, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 9, it says that the hand of God was with him. When you're in Ezra 7, go ahead and say amen. Okay. Ezra 7, I'll go ahead and read verse 9. It says this, On the first day of the first month, he began his journey, speaking of Ezra, from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. Oh, boy, wouldn't we like to have the hand of God upon us? Verse 10, what's the very first word in verse 10? For. In other words, it's explanatory in nature. This is linking it to the good hand of God being upon him. Why was the good hand of God upon him? The answer is in verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This was the reason God's hand was upon him. How do we have God's hand upon me? First, as Ezra notes, Ezra had prepared his heart. Ezra had prepared his heart. That word prepare is often used in the context of the sanctuary sacrifices when the priests would prepare the animals. They would examine the animals. They would make sure that the animals were without blemish, being open to the eye of examination. And so what does that mean? Approaches everything. Well, it means this. It means this, that there's a preparation of the heart to hold nothing back from God. You can fill that in in your handout. It's a preparation of the heart to hold nothing back from God. Like we looked at that text, John 7, verse 17. If anyone is willing to do God's will, he will know the teaching, whether it's of God or whether it's of men. So we approach God with this openness, this willingness, say, okay, whatever you have for me to hear, that's what I want to do. If we're not approaching the word with that openness, then we're approaching it with a certain closeness, a bias, a certain lenses on our eyes that are going to hinder our ability to discern God's will for us. And so, preparation of the heart to hold nothing back from God. And then this next one, openness to being, there's three things, to being taught, changed, and what's the last one? 
used by God through his Holy Spirit. Did you notice those three verbs uh, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10? He said, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Right? He wanted to understand it for himself and to do it. So he didn't just want to hear the law of God. He actually wanted to live it out. He was willing to be changed by the word. But then there was a third thing in verse 10, to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach. So he was listening not just with his ears, but for another set of ears, for someone else's ears. You understand that when God wants to speak to us, he's not only wanting to speak to us, he's wanting to speak through us. Isaiah 50, verse 4, speaking of the devotional habits of the Messiah to come. In Isaiah 50, verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I would know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. I would love to be able to know exactly what to say at the right time. And then the next phrase says, He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. How did Jesus know exactly what to say at just the right time? Because morning by morning, he had spent time with his God. God had given him an instructed tongue. How many words are not being shared in due season because we haven't taken the time with God to hear them? How many people that we interact with at work or at home are not being given bread from heaven because we haven't been receiving bread from heaven. God wants us to be open to being taught, changed, and used. John 16 verse 12 tells us, well, Jesus, he's talking to his disciples. He says, hey, there are many things that I have to tell you, but you're not ready for them. (laughs) In other words, there is an attitude that when we approach the word of God, sometimes we think we know it all. Nobody like that in here, right? Uh, But the reality is that when we come to the Word of God, even if it's a story that we've read before, even if it's a concept or a doctrine that we've understood before, we need to come with this idea that God wants to show us something brand new. We need to come with the learner's heart. We need to come willing to realize that there's always something to learn. All right, principle number one approaches everything. Principle number two, let's see. Principle number two, God is more interested in quality over quantity. God is more interested in quality over quantity. So if you're wondering, okay, what am I going to do tomorrow morning? Maybe you need to start uh, filling out a time card of the time that you spend with God. Is that, no, that's not what we're talking about. God is not interested, well, sure, he is interested in quantity, but even more than that, he prioritizes the quality of time. So how do we set up quality time with God? Well, find a quality time of day that's good for your mind, okay? You're going to look for a time of day where your mind is fresh, where your mind is sharp. You're also going to look for a place, physically, where you're undistracted. Remember the example of Jesus. Right? While it was still dark, time of day, he withdrew to a solitary place. Place, okay? That he, he manipulated his physical environment. He was sure that he didn't have any distractions. If you need to unplug from the internet, if you need to power down your cell phone, you know, whatever it is you need to do so that you can have solitary space. So quality time comes from that. God is more interested in quality over quantity. How about this? Principle number three, quality study. Quality study comes from asking quality questions. Quality questions. What do I mean by that? That when you come to the Word of God, 
you want to be able to ask questions so that the Word of God can speak back to you. Okay? But sometimes we, we end up asking the wrong kinds of questions. We end up asking questions where we end up reading into the Bible what we want to see rather than allowing the Bible to speak to us what we need to see. And so what are the questions? Here are some categories of questions that I've shared uh, on your handout. And maybe I've shared this with you before in the past. But there are three categories of questions. Observation, interpretation, application. I know we're getting kind of in the nuts and bolts here, but I hope this is helpful for you tomorrow morning and the next morning and the next morning, okay? So the first level of questions, I call it the what level. It's the what. And then there's the so what. And then there's the now what. So when I come to the Bible, I want to observe the details. That's the what level. And then with those details, understanding what's going on, then I want to ask, so what's the big deal about that detail? So what's the significance that Jesus was here and not there? And I start reading between the lines and actually seeing the connection, the cause and effect, the relationships there. And with that observation and then interpretation, then we can move into application. Are we following this today, yes or no? Yeah? Application, that's probably the most significant question. Actually, it's the question that we all really want to ask. What am I supposed to do about this now? Right? But notice that there's a very intentional sequence there. I mean, this is the, maybe you're familiar with this from your uh, science fair days, right? You're setting up like a, a science experiment. You've got your hypothesis there. So you, first you want to observe. Okay, what, what's the observable data here? And then once you actually have observed for several days, then you make some interpretations, some guesses and stuff, and then you make a conclusion, an application. We do this every day. We do this every day with, with our everyday living. But sometimes with the Bible, we like to skip straight to application. Have you ever done that before? Maybe you've had one of those days, Lord, I need to hear a word from the Lord. You flip open, and Judas went out and hung himself. Oh, Lord, that's not what I needed to hear. That's not what I needed to hear. Lord, I need to hear a word from the Lord. What you do, do quickly. That's not what I needed to hear. Do you understand? We, sometimes we go to the word of God, and we look for these immediate applications without going through the process of observing, interpreting, and then applying. And some of us are already connecting the dots. Oh, yeah, no wonder it takes time. <laughs> no wonder it takes time. No wonder with your bread, you don't just immediately move to swallow mode. You chew. And the longer you chew, the more you enjoy it, actually. You really want to know how to enjoy your food. Stop talking, start chewing. <laughs> And so, same thing with the Word of God. So, let's, say, let's go back to Luke chapter 10, because I want to go back there. Luke chapter 10, let's, let's take this story, for example, we've already looked at it. Luke chapter 10 is the story of Martha and Mary. And let's say, for example, tomorrow morning you wake up, and you've allotted time to spend with God. And you want to look at a story, and you're wanting to observe. So, in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, if you're there, say amen. Okay? You're observing, you're observing. Oh, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She called a sister, excuse me, and she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. We really just went through this process earlier. What was Mary doing? Sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing his word. We're just paying attention to the details. Paying attention to the details. What was Martha doing? According to verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving. Okay, so we've observed. 
Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha is serving. And apparently she's distracted in her serving. And now let's just kind of fast forward a little bit. Now let's just kind of say, okay, what's the big deal about the detail that Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing his word? Well, apparently the significance is that Martha wants her to do something else. There's always a tug to do something else than sit at Jesus' feet. Mm. Yeah, and there's, mmm, mmm. That's, that's what we sound like when we're chewing and enjoying our food, by the way. Mmm, mmm, mmm. You want to know what the Hebrew word, by the way, when the Bible talks about meditating in the law of the Lord? The Hebrew word is haga. Go ahead and try to say it without spitting on your neighbor. Haga. And literally, it means growl. It's the sound of a lion purring over its prey. When we meditate on the law of the Lord, we're, mm, oh, yeah. Okay? You follow today? This is powerful stuff. And so, okay, so we see the detail. Mary is there. Well, what's the big deal about Martha being distracted? Well, what's she distracted by? Distracted with much serving. So what? So what? Well, apparently, it's possible to serve God, yet be distracted from God. Mm. <clears throat> right? Other questions, maybe your observation is like, hey, what is the story that comes right before this? What is the story that comes right after this? Well, the story that comes right before this is the story of the Good Samaritan. Active service. The story right after this is prayer. Jesus teaching them how to pray. Okay, so what's the big deal about Luke putting this story right between Good Samaritan highlighting active service and then Jesus teaching the people how to pray? Well, what's the big deal? Well, maybe our active service is only appropriate when it's the outflow of our time with God. Are you following that today? Okay, so, so you're, mm -hmm, okay. <laughs> All right, so there's what? There's so what? But then, you know, maybe you've been mm -hmm, chewing, chewing, loving this time with the word that, oh, whoa, time to go. And you forget that now what time. The now what is the most critical. Now what am I going to do about it? If this is true, what will I do? If it's true that, that we can be distracted by even our service for God, distracted from our time with God, then what am I going to do about it? What will I do tomorrow about it? How will tomorrow be different because of what I've read today? You understand that? And this is probably where, you know, the Holy Spirit speaks very pointedly, and it, this, is, this is more powerful than sermons, friends. I'll tell you the truth. Uh, maybe you can tell me the truth, too. You don't necessarily remember the sermons a week from now. Maybe you do. Praise God if you do, okay? <laughs> and I don't want to underestimate that, but for me, there are few sermons that I actually remember for my lifetime. But I know that God has spoken to me through his word in my time alone with him. The lessons that I've learned through personal discovery are the lessons that have really shaped me most significantly. And I believe that many of us have this experience, but many of us are just waiting for this experience. And God wants to give it. God wants to give it. Yeah. So how does this happen? How does this happen? What am I going to do about this? In John chapter 17, verse 3 Jesus says, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When Jesus is talking about eternal life, he's talking about it more than just quantity of years. He's talking about a quality relationship with God. 
when he wants to tell you what life is, what the, the life that he really wants to give you, it's knowing him. It's knowing him. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, you know, at the end of the, the message to this church in Laodicea, Laodicea is described as a church that has need of nothing because oh, everything's taken care of. And then Jesus says, no, this is what I really want for you. The antidote to our lukewarmth, the antidote to our, our version of Christianity that God would rather vomit out of his mouth, the antidote to that, it's time alone with him. Behold, I'm standing. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. That's what God wants, to undo our spiritual complacency. You want spiritual faithfulness that says, I will dare to be a Daniel. You want spiritual boldness that says, hey, we ought to obey God rather than man. You want spiritual fervor that isn't content with just being lukewarm? Spend time alone with God. Spend time alone with God. It may not happen in a day, but it happens day by day where we become changed, more like Him, where we become forever faithful. At the end of Luke 10, very pointed statement, Jesus says, but one thing is needed. And Mary has done what? What's the next part? She's chosen that good part. And it will not be taken from her. Friends, our time alone with God cannot be taken from us, but we can give it away. How? By not choosing. That's the kicker right there. Mary has chosen. So here's that now what? Now what am I going to do? How am I going to choose the good part? How am I going to choose it? How is tomorrow morning? What choice am I going to make? What priority am I going to make? Hey, I need to be on time to work or whatever. Hey, friends, we can, we can be all diligent about meeting the expectations of our employer, but how about meeting our date with God? We've got to choose it. The things that are important to us, those are the things that we choose. So will we choose it? Will we choose it? There in your handout, make sure to fill it in. Last line. While our time with Jesus is not something that can ever be taken away from us, it is something we can passively give away. We must actively and deliberately choose to sit at the feet of Jesus. Right now, you're even beginning to make some plans. Okay, how is tomorrow morning going to be different? I know I'm supposed to do this. I know I'm supposed to throw the laundry in. I know I'm supposed to go to this birthday party. Da -da 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 -da. Friends, <laughs> choose the good part first. Choose the good part first. And watch, watch how God builds a foundation of faithfulness in your life and mine. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God who actually longs to spend one-on-one -on -one time with us. And we thank you for this, this study where we can realize its importance and realize some practices. Lord, all of this will mean nothing if it doesn't actually turn into our reality. And so we want to live this out. So we pray for faithfulness. We pray for courage. Lord, I pray for families and households who are hearing this together, and I pray that they would cheer each other on in this. That there would be a, a partnership to, to guard one another's time if maybe we're having a struggle to choose this good part. Lord, may we find strength in being able to choose the good part together. Lord, I pray for our young people who, just like Daniel, had the opportunity to build that custom from his early days. I pray that our young people would long to, desire to, just be eager 
to spend time with you. Father, I pray for those of us who are more seasoned in our experience, and maybe we haven't cultivated this habit, but I thank you that you are able to instruct us and teach us, even in our more seasoned years, in the way that we should go. Thank you, God, for this privilege of knowing Jesus. May we know him personally and powerfully. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. Amen. God bless you, friends. Tonight, our presentation, Taking a Stand at the End, there is a fellowship potluck. We'll look forward to joining you. God bless.